This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. The last chapter was all about Abby Hoffman and my relationship to Abby, uh, but it's a big one, and it's going now into its second chapter. This is, of course, Steal This Chapter, Part 2. Uh, as you remember, last time we left off, uh, Abby had been arrested uh, for selling, of all things, cocaine, which seemed to make no sense to me whatsoever. The reason being that several weeks earlier, Abby had asked if I would co-sign a loan for him. Now, normally, I, I got used to not signing uh, loans for people or co-signing loans for people because you become responsible for their debt, and in a couple of cases, I really got burned, all right? So, uh, but for Abby, I did it. And it was, I can't remember how much the amount was, but it was something like three or 4000 maybe $5,000, okay? And my feeling was, he just got busted for selling Coke. I mean, aren't Coke dealers, wouldn't they have $5,000? Why would he want to borrow money from me? What, to buy the Coke? I have no idea. But, of course, when he got arrested, as I said, the, the first thing he message he got out to anybody was through Anita, his wife, and uh, the, um, <laughs> the message was, hey, the loan didn't go through, uh, so I wouldn't have to worry. But he had got arrested, and uh, now he was facing charges of selling cocaine, which could have gotten him, I think at that point, 10 years in jail, maybe more. Um I don't know. Uh, to this day, I don't know whether he was selling cocaine or not. I never in the future, and you'll hear about the future soon here, asked him ever whether he had sold the cocaine or not. But his claim was is that he was, he was writing a new book, and part of that new book was selling drugs. And so he was doing some research. And in the middle of the research, uh, he got caught supposedly selling cocaine. But whatever the reason, Abby couldn't see a way out of this. So he figured the only way to get out of it was to jump bail and disappear. Because he had a feeling that if he waited several years, that uh, in the meantime, the case would have cooled. Um, his main, he has maintained or maintained to his death that the suitcase of drugs were planted. Uh, by the government to get him. But he didn't have the money, the resources, or anything like that to be able to handle the kind of aggressive defense that he needed to prove all of this. So he felt that by disappearing, if he went away for five, six, seven years, uh, things would get better. It would calm down. It would cool down. The government wouldn't be as hot to get him. All right? So he jumped bail, and he did that... Uh, uh, in, uh, let's see here, I think it was 19, yeah. Uh, he was arrested uh, August 28, 1973, and in 1974, he skipped bail. Now, I, uh, I, in his Wikipedia thing, it doesn't say exactly what the date was on that. He did not surface again until September 4th, 1980. But that doesn't mean I didn't see Abby in that time. He went on the lam, he disappeared. Everybody wondered, where is Abby? Where could Abby possibly be? And uh, you've got to realize that I didn't meet back up with Abby 
until about 1980. Now we're talking 1974 to 1980, which is, oh, that's a good six years. And how did I meet up with Abby again? Okay, let me tell you the story. It's a great story. There's a guy by the name of Henry Jaglum. He was a director. Still is, I guess. And he had a movie called Sitting Ducks. And after the movie, he held a party for the movie. So we went to see the movie, and then we went to the party. And I remember specifically that Penny Marshall and, and Rob Reiner were there. That, that I do remember. And a bunch of other people that we knew uh, and that he knew, and some people we didn't. And one of these people that I didn't know was as I was planning on leaving the party, I was waiting in the foyer of the restaurant, and um, I, uh, my, uh, my wife at the time, Susan, um, decided to disappear and go to the bathroom, all right? And I'm standing there waiting for her, and all of a sudden this, this short guy with a beard and uh, um, going bald, um, comes up to me and says, you know who I am? And I look at him, and you know, I'll tell you something. You look at somebody and, and, and you think, maybe I know this guy, but I don't know if I know this guy. And I said, uh, fresh, refresh my memory. And he said, whispering, it's Abby. And I looked at him and I said, fuck. It is you. Because then I could see it, all right? Because the Abbey I knew didn't have a beard, he wasn't balding, and there was something else about him. Something I was going to learn later on as I got to know him in hiding. And that was that one of the major things you have to change, and he had to change, was he was always used to being out in public and being the guy everybody wanted to talk to and the guy that... Uh, would say stuff and people would listen and so on. He had to learn how to disappear into a crowd. He said that was the main thing he had to learn. And that's what he had done at this party. I wouldn't have recognized him. If he had started going, and so I hang in a huh, all of a sudden I'd go, Abby's here. He said, that's one of the things you do. He said, it's not so much my looks that have changed, but it's the way I kind of walk and the way I walk into a room and the kind of uh, uh, presence that I create. So I said to him, I said, this is, listen, Abby, get a hold of me. You know, you have my number, right? You have the old number? He says, yeah, I still have the old number. I said, give me a call or just, you know, come knock on my door. You know, I want to talk to you. I want to see you. And I was there that night with my friend Steve Gruberg and his uh, then girlfriend, later wife, Adrian. And uh, uh, they suddenly came into the foyer as well, along with my wife. And now I had to introduce this guy, and I said, uh, this, and this is, oh, this, and we were hugging, this is what it was. I was hugging him, like, gee, I missed you, you know, this, this is terrific. And then my wife shows up, she thinks it's like some ex-gay lover that I had or something. And uh, then Adrian and Steve show up, and I say, oh, by the way, this is my friend, and I... I didn't know what to call him. And he immediately chimed in because he knew I was going to have difficulty with that and said, Barry Freed, glad to meet you. And that was the name he was using, was Barry Freed. And um, so it, uh, I, I said, uh, you know, get a hold of me. 
please, you know, get a hold of me. I'm saying this now to Barry Freed. And we start walking out the door. Steve Gruberg, this is so Abby, Steve Gruberg says to me, he's walking behind me, so he has to shout a little bit. He says, if I didn't know better, I'd think that was Abby Hoffman. And Abby, who I guess hears this, runs out of the restaurant and shouts to him down the block, you got it. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, what started to happen was Abby did get a hold of me. And Abby started coming over to my place. My place became a safe house for Abby Hoffman. Now, what's interesting is in the six years that he was gone, I never heard from him. And one of the reasons was is because I was a friend of his. He didn't contact his friends. But it was starting to become apparent that he could kind of do this now, that he could kind of be a little, little riskier. So he would come to New York, and he would stay at my place. Uh, and uh, he did this on about five or six different occasions. So I was, I was, I, folks, I committed a federal act, a, f a federal crime, okay? Um, big deal, big effing deal, all right? But Abby Hoffman is, is staying at my place while he's on the lam from the law. And uh, he said, you know, one of the days there, he said, you know, you guys got to come up and, and see Johanna and I. Up and, and, we were, and we had learned by then that where he was living was the Thousand Islands. The th yes, where the salad dressing. It, the salad dressing does come from there, as a matter of fact. It was invented uh, by um, uh, uh, the Astors. Uh, for the Waldorf Astoria, well, not uh, of the Waldorf Astoria, his chef used to come up to the Thousand Islands where Astor had a boat. And on the boat, he would invite people. And one night they invited people and they didn't have any dressing for the salad. And the chef immediately thought, oh, let me put some stuff together. And he got some, I think it was relish, ketchup. And, uh, relish and ketchup, I think, is what it is. And they loved it so much, he always served it. And they called it Thousand Island Dressing. But I digress. He says, I'm living up in the Thousand Islands. Come up and see us, okay? So he gave me the address, and we figured on a date. And I and then my new wife, Susan, who I will explain in future chapters, all right, um, started, uh, started the trip. We had a car, and we got in the car, and... We went up, and what's interesting is, here's a guy who's hiding from the law, and yet all you had to do was go straight ahead, up the highway. Just don't, you don't even get off the highway until you get to uh, the Thousand Islands and this one town that he was in, I forget the name of it now, and then make one left, go down about a half a mile, and there was Abby's place. I mean, that's how easy it was to get to him. And uh, we traveled up there, and we got there, and we were, as we pulled in, greeted at the door by Abby, who then introduced us to Johanna Lawrenson, who was his girlfriend at the time, and had been his mate for quite a while. Um, Abby had left behind, when he split, uh, a wife, Anita, and a child, who they named America. They named him America because uh, Grace Slick had a kid they named China, a girl they named China. So he said, um, we're going to name our kid America. Uh, later on, that name, uh, the kid kind of changed it because he became an adult. He didn't want to be called America, so he calls himself Eric. Um, 
But uh, we went up there, and, and Eric was there too. And he said, now, I'm Barry Freed, and the kid is Alan Freed. Named him after the disc jockey, is Alan Freed. And the kid was knew how to play this game completely of hide-and-seek from the FBI and from the federal officials. So um, uh, Johanna, by the way, very interesting woman, her mother, I, and I'm trying to remember, I was trying to look up her mother's name, but the, 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 um, uh, the book seems to have been forgotten. She wrote a book called Latin, Latins Make Better Lovers, and that was in the 1940s and became a well-known author at that time. And her father was, I think, the head of the Longshoremen's Union at one point. So there was kind of a very radical background to Johanna as well. And she, she just loved the hell out of Abby. Okay? Or Barry. Abby now says to me, hey, let's take a, uh, a ride. And he takes me out to the dock of, uh, that was right along the St. Lawrence Seaway. Uh, St. Lawrence River, actually. And uh, we get in the boat. And he takes the boat out to the middle of the lake, uh, lake, river, excuse me. And I keep memory, in my mind, it's kind of like a lake, and I keep making that mistake. Anyway, we go out to, uh, to the middle of the river, and he stands up in the boat, and at the top of his lungs shouts, I'm Abby Hoffman! And then he sits down again and looks at me and goes, I got to do that at least once a week to keep sane. And then we went back. And he was living in a very nice house there. Johanna was a wonderful woman. Abby had become an incredible chef by this point. Let me tell you something. While he was on the lamb from the law, <laughs> there were a lot of people who cared about him. And one of them, I think, was Playboy publisher Hugh Hefner. And they gave him a card that said, uh, he was a reporter for Playboy magazine. And he had gone all over Europe doing what he said were articles. He didn't write them, but he was telling the chefs this, articles on these various chefs, these famous chefs across Europe. And as he would go on these trips, he would literally steal the recipes and ask them about them and then steal them. Or if he saw a recipe hanging out, he would steal that. He came back armed with recipes for some of the most wonderful meals you would ever eat, and he would cook them for you. And that's what we had for several dinners while we were there. Now, Abby also taught me a few things about being on the lamb from the law, so let me give them to you and recite them to you at this point. Um... He said, first of all, he said, while you're here, he said, if at any point you call me Abby, just keep going. Don't stop. And, and don't hesitate for a second. Because nobody will really hear it. Okay? But if you go, Abby, oh, I mean Barry, then he says, it's going to be a problem. And I did at one point do that in a crowd of people. Of course, the people knew who he was. But I knew to just, I just kept going. Abby, uh, um, I blah, 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 blah. Um, and he, he said also, he said, um, um, uh, just, uh, you know, don't, don't treat me like you would treat Abby Hoffman. He said, just treat me like I'm Barry Freed. Now, Barry Freed had gotten very famous. How? Well, he was living on the St. Lawrence Seaway, and every winter, 
um, uh, ice would form on the St. Lawrence Seaway, okay? And he would um, then take, uh, the boats would come along, and they would do winter navigation, pushing the ice onto the shore and killing the birds, killing uh, the, the fauna and the flora and whatever, and ruining, literally ruining uh, the river's uh, banks. So he started a movement to save the river, and it became a big movement, and eventually he got them to stop using the frozen seaway as a route. Boats were not allowed to travel on the, on the, on the river during the winter months when things were frozen and could ruin the, uh, the flora and fauna of the river. He did this as Barry Freed. And many politicians would come up and curry favor with him. And the first night we were there, he said, listen, I got to speak at this, uh, this uh, gathering that they're having about the river and everything. So why don't you come along and record it for me? So I had my recorder with me. So I said, okay, I'll record it for you. And so we go to it. And he's being treated like, like the old Abby Hoffman in a way. I mean, he is the guy who has stopped all this um, use of, of boats and so on on the river during the winter. And he gets up and he gives a little speech. Well, who is there is Marianne Krupsack, who you may not know the name any longer, but her, she was the lieutenant governor of the state of New York. And she then got up and said, I want to thank Barry Freed for all his work that he has done, blah, 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 praising this guy, not knowing who really Barry Freed was, and then handing him a plaque. And it was at that precise moment, I had been out of work for a while, and uh, I, I didn't know what I was going to do and how I was going to get back into radio. Uh, but I said to myself, as I saw this going on, if Abby can accomplish this much, being in hiding and having to hide who he is, the, you know, at least I can get a fucking job. But anyway, so we, uh, we then, uh, the next morning... Uh, Abby suggested we all get in the boat, uh, the four of us, and we start going down the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway. And uh, he'd drive us around the seaway and show it to us. But anyway, let, let me explain this to you. Um, uh, we took a, let's see, what it was that we took first? We took a quaalude. Uh, and uh, then we smoked, on the boat, we smoked some pot. And I was righteously high. And to this day, I remember floating down that river with Abby Hoffman, fugitive, Johanna Lawrenson, his fugitive girlfriend, uh, my wife and myself, and thinking to myself, because it is just a gloriously beautiful day on that river, just breathtaking. And all I could think to myself was, this is maybe the best day of my life. And it was. I mean, it wasn't just because I was high. It was just everything was fine. And then we got to one point, and he showed us something. He said, see that? He said, that is the Canada-United States line. I am this close to Canada. And I said to him, yeah, but, you know, if he went to Canada, you'd have to have ID. He says, not necessarily. But if I had to have ID, he says, I got more ID as Barry Freed than you've got as Alex Bennett or Bennett Schwarzman or whatever. And then he takes the boat 
and goes across the Canadian border. And there's this big, like, dam or something, and we pull up, and there's this big grass knoll there. And we're lying out in the sun, and I'm thinking, glorious fucking day. This is just, it's wonderful. And he got into Canada this easily, by the way. That, that was the amazing thing to me. You can get, a, get into Canada without having to go through any kind of checks. You could just do this. And, and he said part of the reason he was there was exactly because of that reason. But anyway, we were sitting on the knoll, and uh, we were looking down at the river, and I think maybe passing a joint back and forth again. We were getting righteously baked. And he said to me, I'm going to give myself up. I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm going to give myself up. I, he says, I've decided it's time. He says, I think enough time has passed. I can get a, a better deal than I would have gotten had I tr been put on trial at the time that I was caught. And I said, well, that's, you know, I don't know. It's not the most wonderful thing in the world because I hate to see you in jail, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> you know, if you have to, you have to. I said, but, uh, you know, I'd think about it. And he says, I'm thinking about it a lot. And we then took the boat and we went back to uh, to his to his house down down river. And um, the one incident that I do remember that was kind of amazing is that you know Abby had always told me uh, during this period of time that the various ways in which you get away with this is he said to begin with I had a nose job he said it wasn't that I had my nose uh, uh, changed I had it straightened because he had in a demonstration a few years earlier, been hit in the nose by a cop and had put his nose out of joint. And he said, I want to thank the government for doing that because then all the photographs have me with that nose. He said, so I had the nose fixed. He said, that was it. He said, then I grew the beard and I was going bald anyway, so I let it happen more on top. So, I, you know, you could still see Abby Hoffman there, but he said, then you have to learn, as I said earlier, how to walk differently, how to enter a room differently, how to command attention differently. He said, and after a while, it's hard for them to detect you. But you got to, you know, you got to be quiet about it. You got to be, you know. So anyway, we went out to dinner on the last night we were there. And we started talking. And we were talking. And we went to this big restaurant. And um, uh, there were waiters in the restaurant, of course. And as the evening went on, we were the only ones probably still there because we were just so deep in talking about stuff and so on and so forth. And um, uh, we're, 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 we're talking at a fairly normal level. And I look, and there's like one waiter in each corner of the room. They're kind of waiting for us to leave, although the restaurant didn't close for another half hour yet, so we didn't feel guilty about that. But everybody else had left. And we got into a discussion about Jerry Rubin, you know, and um, how I didn't like Jerry that much, and, and Johanna hated uh, Jerry. Uh, you know, she just didn't like him at all. And he, he was defending Jerry, and he was starting to get a little more verbose, and I guess, you know, we had had some wine, and he was starting to really uh, get a little bit loud. And finally she said something about jail, and uh, uh, he says, what do you know about jail? He said, I've been arrested five times. And he's shouting this, and there are these waiters sitting in the room, and I'm going, Abby, 
you know, you got better pipe it down. There are people here listening. And he said, what was it, four times? <laughs> but nobody paid attention to it. Um, and it was, uh, uh, it was just, it was a wonderful weekend. I got to tell you, one of the most memorable weekends of my life. I could make a movie about that weekend. And uh, there was just something about Abby that was just so wonderful as a person. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I just so enjoyed my company with him. And I just absolutely, there was something about being with someone who was running from the law. It just made life a little more exciting. It was that old expression about living life on the edge of a razor, you know? And there was that hint of danger. There was the pot. There were the quaaludes. And there was all of that. We just had what was a just absolutely terrific time. So it was time to go back home. And uh, we went back home. And about, I had to be maybe two weeks later, uh, on September, um, uh, in September of 1980, it was a couple of weeks after we left him, that Barbara Walters announces that Abby Hoffman is going to give himself up to her. And I went, well, Abby said he was going to give himself up and he's doing it in a big way. And it's six years now since he's been arrested, maybe a little more than that. Uh, yeah, about, about almost, uh, uh, let's see, he left in spring of 1974. It didn't say when exactly here, uh, but then he showed up in 1980 and September 4th, 1980 uh, is when he turned himself over to the cops. But he turned himself over to Barbara Walters on national television. He, he had her, you know, I told you, you just go straight up the road and then you turn left, go down about... 20 houses or whatever, and there's Abby, right? But no, he made her go to the middle of the lake, and then he took his boat out and met her in the middle of the lake, and the cameramen are grinding away on her boat, and he's giving himself up to Barbara Walters. And I'm sitting there laughing, going, she, he actually, this son of a bitch, you know, he never, when he was going to do it, he was going to do it right, and he did it dramatically in the middle of the river. Because to have her just drive up to the house and shoot him in his living room, that wouldn't work well. But having literally Barbara Walters have to get in the fucking boat and go out to the middle of the lake so he could give himself up to her. And he gave himself up to her. And uh, he got a one-year sentence, but was released after four months. And he was right. He called it right. If I just wait like six years, what would be a 10-year sentence... Uh, would come out to a year in jail. And he was eventually given a sentence of a year in jail. He got out after four months, and uh, uh, that was it. But during this time, he had proved to me that you can disappear. You can just absolutely disappear, and people will not be able to find you. Okay? Um, he, uh, he did a lot of things in the future years. And the, ne the next time that I met him, I really should wait for another chapter in this, uh, in this saga, was when I was back in San Francisco and he and Jerry Rubin uh, were running around the country uh, doing these debates. And uh, Abby, knowing he was coming to San Francisco and that I was in San Francisco, asked me if I would uh, moderate the debate. Something 
Jerry didn't really want me to do because he felt I was not going to be fair to him. And yet after it was through, he, he said, Alex, I have to admit you were quite fair with me. And I said, that's the way I am, Jerry, you know. But anyway, he came to San Francisco. That was the next time that I met him after uh, he had gotten out of jail. Because slow, shortly after we were up there in the Thousand Islands, I got a call from a guy in California, and we'll tell that whole story later on, offering me a job in California. And so pretty much we were up and gone by the time he got out of jail. So I didn't see Abby Hoffman again physically until he appeared on my program in San Francisco uh, years and years later. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was sad, though, because um, I was in uh, New York City uh, doing my San Francisco show. And uh, we got word that Abby Hoffman had committed suicide. Now, what I didn't know about Abby is that he had bipolar disorder. And he was taking a medication for this bipolar disorder. And what I'm told was it, it, it kind of sucked all the real juices out of his creativity. And he never felt he was the same when he was taking the drugs to prevent the bipolar disorder. Maybe it was the bipolar disorder that caused Abby to be the way he was. But in any event, uh, uh, he at a certain point decided to stop taking these drugs. And then the depression set in. And the depression included the fact that he didn't like being middle-aged. He liked being young, and, and, and he knew he wasn't anymore. Uh, but that wasn't all. Um, he just got very, very depressed about, uh, about everything. And at one point, finally decided that he couldn't take it any longer. And he downed uh, 150 phenobarbital tablets and liquor and committed suicide. It was a very sad day for me. I, and I, as I said, I was in New York at the time doing my San Francisco show out of New York for a week. And I was being interviewed by CBS for it because they knew that I knew him. And I said, it's just one of the saddest days of my life. Because this was a guy who I really, you know, I hadn't seen him in quite a few years. But man, he was, he was, I would wish that any of you would have been able to, to meet him. This was perhaps, of all the people I've ever met in my life, the singularly most memorable. And that's Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me, I'm Alex Bennett.